Amen and good morning to you all. I noticed a, a few empty seats this morning. It could be um, something going on. You know, I don't know this firsthand, but I've been told by, by other people who have done it. When you call in sick from church to watch the big game, your team always loses. So maybe by being here, you're covering for them somehow. You just DVR the thing. In fact, a woman in first service, I'm not going to put her picture on the big screen or anything like that, but she uh, stayed home to watch the Bengals last week, and you know how that worked out if you follow sports at all. Mark chapter 6 this morning. Not for any of us. Okay, we'll move on. Mark chapter 6 this morning. And in all unbelief, there's always two things that emerge. A high opinion of one's self and a low opinion of God. It's almost inevitably comprised of both of those two things. A.W. Tozer said, every man will have to decide for himself whether or not he can afford the terrible luxury of unbelief. Now, whether you're here this morning and you're a believer in Christ and your sins have been forgiven and you're going to heaven or whether you're just checking out a church on the corner to see what it's like the fact is is that everybody has to weigh the consequence of what they choose to believe and not believe and up until this point in time through the first five chapters of the book of Mark what we've seen is for the most part with a few exceptions that well, Jesus has been attractive to everyone. Everyone has been flocking to Jesus. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to believe in him. Now, finally, we come to a chapter where we start to see unbelief. We see people that are going to reject Jesus. A group of people, individual people. They have different reasons for rejecting. A lot of those reasons we'll see in the text this morning. But I think it's important for us, every person here, to identify with those things and then not see if in our own hearts or in our own lives those things can't be said to be true of us at least at times yesterday morning as i was preparing finalizing for today when i log onto the internet i go to my yahoo homepage and i see the things that are trending on the internet and i clicked on one thing that captured my uh, attention it was uh, an image caught by a nasa space telescope in outer space 17,000 light years away of a star that had exploded in outer space and had left the remains of what looked like an x-ray of a large hand and it caused a lot of people in fact it has been dubbed the hand of God and it caused a lot of people to look at this it's gone viral so I read a lot of the articles a lot of them not necessarily written by believers at all, I couldn't believe how many people were giving some credence to this that actually thought something of it. You know, never mind the star itself, never mind the galaxy that holds the star, never mind the universe that holds the galaxy, but the fact that there would be a handprint in outer space somehow might lead me to think that there could be a God. To me, those kinds of things are right up there with like, you know, when a shadow is placed on a certain spot at a certain time of day and it looks like the Virgin Mary or something like that. Or if someone sends you a YouTube video and they say the longer you look at it, it looks like Jesus. 
even though nobody knows what Jesus really looked like for sure. Those are the kinds of things I think that people look for in this life. Like that's almost, I think, an excuse to not believe. Because in essence, what we're saying is, well, now here's the evidence. As if we don't have enough. We see a giant hand in outer space and we miss his handiwork in creation. We miss other things too, as if he hasn't shown it to us in our own hearts, in our conscience. Solomon said that, you know, uh, we have the concept of eternity placed on our hearts. So in other words, we know instinctively, intuitively, that there's something greater than ourselves. Our conscience reveals that to us. Kent Hughes said of our conscience, it's the warning light that goes off in your soul. One teenager defined it as the thing that makes you tell your mom before your sister does. Mark Twain said this about our conscience. He said, man is the only animal that blushes and the only animal that needs to. Why? Because we have a conscience. We've been shown by God that there are some things in this world that are very right. And there are also some things that are very, very wrong. And we've been shown that naturally. The Apostle Paul makes that case in the book of Romans. And specifically from Romans chapter 2, he said, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So maybe the short answer sort of to begin from this morning would say that we believe or we don't believe in part based upon what we do with our conscience. Our thoughts either accuse us and we accept that concerning ourselves. I am guilty, a sinner. Or we excuse with our thoughts our conscience and instead make excuses, point the finger, or find reasons not to believe. And we'll see that here in the text this morning. So far, up until this chapter, with rare exception, everywhere Jesus has gone, he has been universally accepted. A couple instances or a couple groups, you might say, that didn't. One was when he went over to Gadara. Remember when he met the demoniac and he cured that demoniac? He cast out a, a legion of demons. Well, now you would think again in that instance, as we've said before, that as soon as that happened, everybody would like to say, wow, this got to be something special about this Jesus character. This guy was a menace to our society. Instead, they asked Jesus to depart from their region. Why? Because he was holy. He was righteous. He was sinless. And when you're not walking with the Lord, sometimes someone walks around, they got a Bible, they're quoting scripture, and you don't want to hear it. And that's kind of what was happening in Gadara. They're like, just get out of here. We, don't, we felt good about ourselves until you arrive. We felt good about ourselves in comparison to this demoniac, but now he's clothed and in his right mind. And so they wanted him to depart. The other group, I think, maybe that similarly wanted Jesus to be gone, so to speak, and maybe for the same reason, might be the religious leaders. Because Jesus came on the scene and he essentially began to undermine everything that the religious leaders stood for. I mean, he comes on the scene and they're about notoriety, they're about uh, popularity, maybe even a little bit about money. 
They're putting a yoke, they're putting a trip on the people to keep rules and regulations that God had never intended. They had stipulations upon stipulations from God's law that God had never identified in his word. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he kind of undermines that. And so from Mark chapter 3 on, basically, the religious leaders are bound and determined to stop him. Nevertheless, as we come to chapter 6, he's more popular than ever at this point. He's built quite a reputation. He has cured illnesses. He has cured demons, or he's cast out demons, healed the lepers. He even, as we saw last time, raised a little girl from the dead. His notoriety had spread all throughout the Galilee and down into Jerusalem. And to a point here where he's attracting these huge multitudes, these big crowds. They want to know what's going on. He's the talk of Israel. The nation is abuzz because of Jesus. Now you would think, as we come to chapter 6, and Jesus heads home to Nazareth, you would think the hometown folks would be totally thrilled to see him arrive. When he comes home, I mean, it's like when a team wins the World Series, a city throws a huge party, a huge celebration. New York City, famously known for their ticker tape parades. Many, many of them they've thrown down throughout the years. They threw two for a golfer, Bobby Jones. In 1930, after winning his second British Open, he was welcomed home by the city of New York to his second ticker tape parade, the only athlete that I know of to ever receive two of them. Now, with all due respect to the golfing community, if a golfer receives a ticker tape parade from an entire city with, you know, dozen million people in it, you would think Nazareth would at least do something in anticipation that the Son of God and their hometown hero is coming back to Nazareth. And yet, what do we find that that's absolutely not the case here? And we're going to see this evidence of unbelief and the reasons for it and the effects of it as well. It says verse 1 of chapter 6, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, so his hometown of Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished. Now stop right there. Now that is fascinating to me. It's amazing to me that people can be amazed by Jesus and yet choose not to believe in him. In fact, that's a trap, something for us to take into consideration this morning. Because you can go to church and you can go, wow, the Lord really spoke to me or it was just a great time. I met some great people. I just had a great time. And yet you can go on just doing whatever you were doing before, not trusting in God, not taking his word at face value. They were astonished, but, but, but they were astonished, but that wasn't enough. Think about what they said here. They were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? But instead of being impressed by him, they instead chose to suppress what they knew about him and try to find problems with him that they might discredit him so that they didn't have to, in their own words, believe the works and the wisdom that they had seen in him when he was preaching there in the synagogue. And so what follows here in verse 3? 
are the excuses. None of these things, you may not realize it at first glance, but none of these things that they're saying about Jesus are complimentary at all. It's a way to explain away the implication of who he claimed to be. It says in verse 3, number one, is this not the carpenter? In other words, isn't he just a carpenter? He's got no formal rabbinical training. He didn't go to the University of Hebrew or Nazareth Seminary or anything like that. So what gives? Isn't he just an average, ordinary kind of guy? Josh McDowell wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter. But in their mind, he's not more than a carpenter, right? That's the first thing they say. Then they say, the son of Mary. Now that doesn't seem like an insult, except that you gotta know the culture. In that day, you were always called a son of your father, according to the Jewish lineage, no matter what. Even if your father was dead and Mary was a widow, which she may have been at this point in time. And yet, still, he should have been referred to as the son of Joseph or whatever the case may be. So when they say this, when they say the son of Mary, they're not ascribing the virgin birth. Okay, that's not what they're doing. They are questioning the legitimacy of his parentage. They're saying, we don't even know who his father is. That's what they're saying. It's a put down in the highest degree. So he's just a carpenter. And by the way, we don't even know who his dad is. And then they say, and isn't he the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And not, uh, are not his sisters here with us? In other words, Hey, we know about this guy. We saw him grow up. These are his brothers and his sisters. I mean, we were on the seesaw when we were three years old. He was on Dave's Little League team growing up. When I was a senior in high school, he was a freshman. It was no big thing at the time. Just an ordinary, um, you know, not really kind of a guy that stood out so much. Well, there's Jesus' response. But Jesus said to them, uh, pro, excuse me, I missed a part there. It says, they were, it says, offended at him. See, now that's how it works sometimes. And you're going to see why here in a minute. But they were offended at him because of what he claimed to be in light of who they were and what they knew to be true about him. It says, but Jesus said to them, verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. That's Jesus' answer to this. Now, there's a saying, you've probably heard it before, it goes something like this, familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, the more familiar you are with someone, the more likely you are over time to take them for granted. Now, if there is any truth to that, then that's something that we have to guard our hearts against as Christians, especially as it relates to Jesus. You could grow up in the church or be walking with God for some time now and you can be used to the stories. You can hear the verses. You can hear it again and again. I've already heard this. I've been through Mark. I've heard this story right here. And you can get to the point where, yeah, I've already heard this and so it breeds contempt in your heart. One pastor called this the plague of our youth in modern day North American Christianity. That is, that they think they know it all. They've heard it all before. They almost know him too well. It's not true, but that's what they think. And so when they hear something about Jesus, they go, oh, I've heard all of that before. Now, the saying that familiarity breeds contempt is not always true. You think about a marriage. 
Now, I know sometimes people get married, they get to know each other, and as they get to know each other, they divorce. Certainly true. But many people that are here that are married would testify to just the opposite. That down throughout the years, as I've grown to know my wife better and know more about her, the more that I love her, the more that I appreciate her, the more that I'm blessed by God to have her. Certainly, many of you would say that that's the case. The more that I get to know most of you, not all of you, but most of you. I'm just kidding. What happens is, is as I get to know you, there's just, I know like your heart. I hear you pray sometime. I see you worship. You tell me your story, where you came from, what you've been through. I understand your sensitivity. I understand what motivates you, some of those things. Those things are attractive in people. And so one author came along and changed that saying to go like this, familiarity breeds contempt only in contemptible people. In other words, the people that were feeling contempt towards Jesus, that tells us nothing about Jesus. It tells them, though, what was going on in their hearts at the time. They were offended and they explained away, oh, he's just a carpenter, because they were contemptible in their hearts. And the implication for my own heart is challenging and revealing because if then I look at any one of you or a person with contempt, then it reveals more about what's going on in my heart than it does any one of you. The commentator Warren Wiersbe tells of a man who goes through an art museum and goes from painting to painting to painting, not impressed in the slightest. Then on his way out, he sees the guard on the way out there and he just kind of mutters something like, nothing in there that's really special. To which the guard responds, uh, sir, the art in here is actually not on trial, but the visitors are. And I thought this was an interesting parallel, and I don't mean this to be personalized per se, not this point, to Calvary Chapel Capitola, but I think there's a sense in which we as Christians have to own where we're at, where our hearts are at. Sometimes someone will say something to me like, man, the worship was just awesome today. And don't get me wrong, there is a sense sometimes in which it seems that God especially manifests his presence in our worship service. But on the other hand, my thinking is if our hearts were in the right place all the time, we would say that every single time. I could get up right here and I could have a sore throat like I do this morning and I could just sing one note and all of a sudden we'd all just be worshiping together and if our hearts were in the right place, we'd all leave going, well, that was great worship, even though we'd be totally unplugged. Matt Redman, you know, the Christian artist. The story is told that he, at a younger age, was leading worship at a church and one day he shows up and the pastor had done just that, had unplugged everything. In fact, Mike's the one who told me the story that then he told me, don't even think about it in terms of me doing it myself. But Matt Redmond came in one day and everything was unplugged. And he went to the pastor and said, hey, what's up? Everything's unplugged. And the pastor said to him, worship. Just worship. And again, I think if our hearts are in the right place, then we could go unplugged. We're not going to do it, but we could any time, and worship would still be that sweet. And think about this, too, because if you were a guest, if I was a guest, the way we human beings are sometimes in that church on that Sunday, and they were unplugged, 
I might walk out of there going, old-fashioned, they think drums are of the devil, and they don't like guitars, and all this kind of thing. And then I would have missed out on having Matt Redman as my worship leader because I would have been critical because my heart was in the wrong place. This is the problem in Nazareth. Their pride is getting in the way. They're contemptible. They're like the jealous person at a high school reunion. Someone comes in, pretty successful, and just explain it all away because I'm not as successful. And in a sense, that's kind of the way that they're reacting. I almost feel like they're looking for reasons, technicalities, not to believe in Jesus Christ. It's been said that God may work with no belief, but not with unbelief. And those are two different things. Notice what it says in verse 5, and I'll explain what I mean. It says, now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now that to me is a fascinating statement. It doesn't say, so then Jesus decided he was done with Nazareth and he was going to skip town. No, it says he could do no mighty work. Wait a minute, he could do no mighty work? Do you mean to tell me that a, a culture or a climate of unbelief in some way limits the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we're told in Psalm 78, verse 41, that unbelief among the Hebrews, among the children of Israel, it says, limited the Holy One of Israel. It's been said, without him, we can't. But without us, he won't. Now, I don't know if that's always true. He created the heavens and the earth without us. But I do think that there is a relationship between when God moves and corresponding faith. And so it says there in verse 6, And he marveled because of their unbelief. It just made him marvel. Now, two times Jesus marveled in the gospel record. One of those times we referenced last week that comes from Luke 7, when the Roman centurion came to him. Jesus marveled at his great faith. Here Jesus marvels at the lack of faith from his hometown. So he marveled at the unbelief of those who should have known him best, but he marveled at the faith of a person, a Roman centurion, a Gentile at that, who would have known him least. Gives me a little pause when I look at that and think and wonder what God thinks about my faith sometimes. Does he marvel more at my belief or does he marvel more at my unbelief? And is it possible, even for those of you that are believers in Christ, is it possible that you could limit the Lord Jesus, what he can, what he will do in your life because of a lack of faith. I can think of a lot of practical ways that I could list. I won't do it this morning, but a lot of practical ways in which we could limit what God could do in our lives because of our lack of faith. And certainly that seems to be what is the case in Nazareth. And so we're told there at the end of verse 6 that he then he went about uh, the villages in a circuit teaching, the villages around Nazareth instead. And verse 7, he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out 
two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. You can't always go out two by two, but when you can, it's a good idea. I think it's Ecclesiastes that says, isn't two better than one? Campus Crusade for Christ always sent them out two by two with this principle in mind. Hey, one can be speaking while the other one is praying. Or where my knowledge gets dried up, then you jump in and you start to handle the questions. So he sent them out two by two and verse eight, he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. Now that's not like a secretary, an assistant, an accountant or something like that. This is a walking stick that they would take with them. Very, very minimal stuff. A staff, no bag. And the word for bag there literally means a beggar's bag. Don't go begging. You will be provided for. No bread, he says, and no copper in their money belts. What do all these things have in common? He was telling them that they needed to depend upon God. God's work done God's way is not going to lack God's support. And so he knew if they were to be sent out that uh, he could be, uh, they could trust in him that he would provide for them, that he knew that they were going to a place that he had sent them. In fact, it says in verse 9, he's told them but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So you can wear sandals, but don't bring two tunics. Like, well, what's the difference? One or two tunics. And the idea here is maybe in case you didn't find a place to stay, in case there was no hospitable people in the town you were at, you'd have an extra tunic that might work as like a blanket in case it was cold outside. But Jesus is saying, don't even prepare for that because I'm sending you to a place where they will let you in. I've already seen this happen. You can trust that your heavenly father will provide. So don't even take two tunics. And also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, Stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Just shake it off. Don't let it bother you when you tell people about Jesus Christ and they reject that. Implicit in the fact that he says it, that he mentions it, is the expectation that they'll experience it, right? that there will be rejection. Some will believe and some won't. That's not your job. You're not responsible for those results you just share anyway. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel, the last of the judges, when the Israelites went to Samuel and said, look, you're getting old and your sons don't walk in your ways. We want a king like the rest of the nations have. Well, the fact of the matter is that was never what God wanted. Israel means governed by God. They were supposed to be a theocracy. If they go to Samuel and they say, hey, we don't want you to be our judge anymore. We want a king, a human king instead. And so Samuel, it says, displeased him in his heart what he had heard. He went to God and God said this to Samuel, something along the lines of, hey, don't let it bother you, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting God. And you keep that in mind when you share with your coworker or your neighbor, you could talk to anybody about any religion in the world and they'd be all ears. But when you talk to people about Christianity, just know because it forces a choice, because they're confronted, again, their conscience accusing and them not wanting to accept that, there will always be people who don't wanna hear it. It's not personal to you, 
they're actually rejecting God. And that's what he's telling them there. You shake that off, you walk that off, and you move on. Assuredly, I say to you, middle of verse 11, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. Now that's worded carefully there. They're not preaching repentance. They're preaching in such a way as to bring about repentance. Both components of the gospel are utterly vital, utterly crucial. What good does it do to preach repentance if it's not repentance unto Jesus, right? Now let me flip that around and let me finish before you get mad at me. What good does it do to preach Jesus as many churches in America do today if you don't preach repentance? It's like going up to someone and saying, you know, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. Well, great, that's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. But if they don't recognize that they're sinners, then why do they care that Jesus rose from the dead? That he died on the cross? It doesn't connect for them. They need both components. It's not complicated, but the good news comes with some bad news. There's good news and bad news. The good news is Christ died and rose for you. The bad news is you're a sinner. And you have to repent of that and entrust Jesus for the remission of your sins. So it's very important because I think we live in a society today where sin has become a word that offends people. Whoa, call me a sinner. You're a sinner. I'm not a sinner. It's an offensive thing. But God has asked us not to tinker with the gospel. It's not our message. The disciples didn't create a message. They went out and brought a message with them, the message that they had seen Jesus preach over and over and over again. They were just doing what they were taught, including what they do in verse 13. It says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. In other words, they were sent out to basically replicate, to duplicate the ministry of Jesus, the teaching, the preaching, and the healing times 12. And the idea is the same for the church today, that we would come to be equipped so that we would multiply. We would be fruitful and multiply in Capitola. And we would find people and we would lead them to the Lord and they would lead others to the Lord. That's what the disciples do. And so much so they do this that the word really goes out to the far-reaching parts of Israel, including to the person we're going to talk about next, who has a dilemma. Well, he had a dilemma. He had a huge dilemma. And he, too, is going to have to make a choice as to what he is or is not going to believe about Christ based upon the things that he had heard. And so verse 14 says, Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. Now notice who it is whose name becomes well known. It's not the disciples. Even though they were essentially replicating Jesus' ministry. But it wasn't, wow, you know, the worldwide ministry of Peter, James, and John. Casting out demons, curing lepers. People weren't talking about that. They did their ministry in such a way as to not draw attention to themselves, even though they were doing exactly the same thing that Jesus was doing. They were still making his name be made known. Now, this is important for us as a church body. This I do mean personally 
to Calvary Chapel Capitola. It's so very important that we don't make a name for our church. You understand what I'm saying? That's not even what we want. We don't want people going, oh, that's a great church. No, we want them to say, in that place, the Lord Jesus is glorified. In that place, they stand on the word of God. In that place, they pray and they hold God in the highest esteem. That's what we want them to say. What they think about us in particular is irrelevant. What they think we stand for is the crucial aspect of this. That what would be made known, if anything, would be the Lord Jesus. His name would be made known by what we do here. That's what the disciples were able to do. That's a trick to be able to do that. Because that's not really the way the world does it. I'm watching a Christmas movie just a few weeks ago. Don't even, I'm not going to tell you. Don't even watch the movie. But it's Christmas Eve and they go to church and like there's a rousing standing ovation when the pastor comes out and they're playing this music as if the Chicago Bulls were coming out or something like that. And it's a pastor, it's just a human being. And that oftentimes, by the way, you talk about things that cause some people to not want to believe. Oftentimes, it's when the world sees the church saying they believe in Christ, but elevating a man instead. That's a turnoff big time. And it ought to be from the perspective of those who don't know otherwise. Well, Herod had his own reasons to be skeptical of Jesus. They really have nothing to do with some of the things we've talked about, but they're still important for us to look at. We might begin with the fact that Herod probably suffered from a guilty conscience. Let me explain. It says, still verse uh, 14, and he said, this is Herod, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said it is Elijah, and others said it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded, and he has been raised from the dead. That's fascinating, isn't it? It's amazing what things people will believe and not believe. I don't know if this is the Messiah, but I do think it's probably John raised from the dead because I was bad to him, and he's going to retell the story here. I was bad, and he's coming to get back at me. So Mark now sort of flashes back to the story of what went down between Herod and John the Baptist. It says, verse 17, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Verse 18, because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay, for the rest of this passage through verse 29 this morning, this is at least PG-13, if not rated R. It's not my fault. It's what the text is. I'm just warning you in advance that that's sometimes what happens, okay? Now, I'll spare you a very long history lecture, lecture here. Herod the Great, okay? He was the guy on the scene when, uh, let's say 30 years before this point, when Jesus was a baby, he had given the command to slaughter all of the children, male children, two years of age and younger. He, this is a maniac. He was anything but great, Herod the Great. Now, Herod was a bad dude. He had many sons. He killed several of them. It was said it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. He had many wives. He was just a corrupt individual. Now, he dies, and when he dies, they divide up the kingdom, and one of the remaining sons gets a piece of it. 
Now, the one that we're talking about here is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. He's the one that's got this thing with John the Baptist, and here's why. Story goes that he's in Rome and when in Rome. He's in Rome. He falls in love with a woman that was his half-brother's wife. And also, by the way, he was married at the time. And by the way, it wasn't just his half-brother's wife. It was his half-brother's niece as well. It was a very messed up kind of family. So he's guilty not only of divorce and adultery, but also incest and just being a bad guy. Well, John the Baptist calls him out on the carpet, okay, for doing this. That was, he was one not to mince words, John the Baptist. Now, the interesting, interesting thing about this is when John the Baptist calls out Herod, it wasn't so much Herod who got whipped up about it. It was Herod's wife. Look what verse 19 says. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So even though you got Antipas, who's this warped, kind of twisted guy, he's got genuine respect for John the Baptist, probably because John the Baptist is a man of principle, when Herod was totally a man of compromise. You know, he wasn't afraid to stand up to the big shots of the world, and Herod kind of respected that. In fact, it would seem that he kind of feared that. For the same reason that the people in Gadara maybe wanted Jesus to depart, Herod's kind of intrigued by John the Baptist. He's a just man. I kind of like him, you know? I'm going to shut him up. I'm going to keep him in prison, but I'm not killing him. And Herodias wanted to kill him, but he's like, no, you don't get to kill him. I don't want to mess with that because something bad might happen if we do something bad to John the Baptist. Well, verse 21, then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for the nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. Now, a birthday party for a Roman you know, king or high-ranking officer in that day, nothing that you would want to go to, okay? Really, I mean, it was a lot of stuff that we don't even need to talk about, but the alcohol's flowing and all kinds of problems. Probably all men, for the most part, for the most part, would have been there, okay? exception, of course, verse 22, it says, now get this, I told you, and when Herodias's daughter, Josephus says her name was Salome, herself came in and danced. This is not tap dancing. It's not a square dance, okay? This is a seductive kind of you fill in the blank so I don't have to sort of thing going on here, right? Now normally this would be done by a professional, you know what I mean? Very rare for someone in a high-ranking position or in royalty or in a public prominent spot to be doing this. Now, again, just to cap on the wickedness here. She's probably not 18. She's probably 16 or 17. And also keep in mind, she is his half-brother's daughter. She is his wife's daughter, and she is his niece, okay? And yet, it says, it pleased Herod and those who sat with him. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom, which was a phony boast. 
according to Roman law, he didn't have the power to give away half of his kingdom. He's just playing a big shot, trying to be a tough guy in front of all his buddies. Again, he probably had been drinking too much as well. Up to half my kingdom. So, verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she, that is her mother, said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, I suppose that John the Baptist here could have been spared. I suppose Herod had an out if he wanted to take it. He could have tried this. No. Could have tried that. I want John the, head, John the Baptist's head on a platter. No. He could have tried that. He could have said something like, well, you know, John the Baptist to me is worth more than half of my empire. Or he could have said, I don't even consider John the Baptist a part of my empire. He could have said anything, but look what he's doing here. Peer pressure, pride, you know, trying to play the big time guy to impress his guests. Something as big as this. Remember, he was afraid in a way of doing anything to John but he was more afraid of how this would damage his big shot reputation. And so it says, verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but let me read the rest. He was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples, that is John the Baptist's disciples, heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Now, I wanted you to bookmark where it said that Herod was exceedingly sorry. In actuality, he was. The word there, the Greek word for exceedingly sorry is the same word that describes where Jesus was at mentally in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was exceedingly sorrowful. The word means greatly distressed. This was a decision that brought him to a place of utter agony. He agonized that he would have to choose between John the Baptist and between his reputation making the promise in front of all of these kinds of people. Herod Add to that, he liked John. He had protected John. He had prevented his wife from killing John, right? She, Herodias, she wanted John dead, and he wouldn't let her do it all of these years. And so this opportune time came. This dance had happened. He made a stupid promise. It was probably an alcohol-induced kind of promise, Right? And that's something to remember as well. Keep that in mind, please. There are some things that people will never do or never say except they're in the wrong place doing the wrong kinds of things. Christians, please. It is so true. Now, that's not an excuse for Herod Antipas. He makes a statement. He's exceedingly sorry, but he's exceedingly sorry that he has to put John to death. Instead of, he could have been exceedingly sorry that he didn't have to keep his word. That he had to break his vow. 
that he could have instead said, boy, I'm exceedingly sorry, but you can't have John the Baptist's head on a platter. See the choice that he had to make? The choice between his own reputation, what people thought about him, or killing John the Baptist, which he never wanted to do. So he was sorry, but there's a difference between sorrow, there's a difference between remorse, and then there's something called repentance. And that's a very different thing. And that exactly is the reason why some people don't want to believe. They don't want to believe because they know exactly what Jesus Christ represents and what it is he's asking us to do. Repentance is not simply emotional grief. It goes beyond that. It comes with a change, a change of heart, a change of lifestyle, a change of focus in my life. And that's a big reason why some people, frankly, just don't want to believe. Listen, if you're here this morning, I'll close on this note. If you're a believer in Christ and you are here and you have not been right with God, I don't care whether it's been for a week or six months for our purposes this morning. It's irrelevant because you can be made right with God right now and all you got to do is begin trusting him again. Just begin to trust him again do the things he's teaching you this morning. You got one thing out of it, take that one thing and implement it into your life. If you're not a believer, if you're here and you're checking church out, you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I brought up several things this morning. Pride gets in the way. Familiarity gets in the way. My ego gets in the way. I'm insulted that someone would call me a sinner. At first, everybody is. How dare you call me a sinner? Of course. But then when I realized that everybody is a sinner and that all that means is we just didn't line up with God's perfect standard that God sent his son to die on the cross that you would have a relationship with him. Think about how much God loved you that he would break into human history to have a relationship with you. 2 Corinthians 7 says, Godly sorrow works repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. It's one thing I can tell. I don't know many things. I know one thing for sure. That godly sorrow leading to repentance unto salvation is not something you're ever going to regret. I can promise you that for sure. Big difference between the way Judas and Peter responded on that night. That night we talked about, the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas was remorseful, wasn't he? The Bible says he went back into the temple, he threw the silver on the ground and said, I've betrayed innocent blood. And the religious leaders said, we don't care. We got what we wanted out of you. What is it to us? He was remorseful, but he went out and hanged himself. Peter didn't do a whole lot better that night. Did you know that? Really, he did not have a much better night. He didn't betray the Lord, but he denied him. He denied him three times. He denied him in spite of the fact that Jesus told him he would. He did it anyway, even though he said he wouldn't. And then he did it at that in front of a large group of people, blaspheming the name of Christ, cursing and swearing in front of a little girl. He hung around, he kept loving the Lord, and then as soon as a few days, just three days later, and the Lord Jesus came to him, and then on that shore there, John 21, 
He restored Peter. He recommissioned Peter. He affirmed Peter's love for him. And that's the difference between feeling bad about my sin. Jeremiah says, as the thief is ashamed when he's found out. I've met a lot of people who are sorry at their court date, but not until then. And this is something where God right now here in your heart is saying to you, look, I'm coming to you in the privacy of your heart, giving you an opportunity just to keep this between you and me. Where you can, between you and me, bring this to me, and I have enough. I have enough grace and mercy and love to cover all of your sins. Anyone who's here this morning can have that opportunity. Actually, we're going to close right now. We're going to sing a song. We're going to take communion. And then afterwards, I'm going to be up here, a couple other men as well. And if you want to come forward, either because you want to get right with God again and you want prayer to be in a right relationship with him again, or if you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, I would beg you, plead you, everyone here who knows the Lord would, you will not regret it, to come forward and pray with us to receive Christ today. Let's close in prayer. Father,